Welcome to the Heavenly Banquet, where the hungry are filled with good things. I'm Charlotte. I'm Chad. Chad, I'm really excited about this topic that you're bringing today. It's something that interests me a lot, and it's something that I think, you know, the average churchgoer, at least in the West, uh, might be unfamiliar with. So I'm really excited to introduce them to it. So I'm just going to flip right over to you. The topic of apocatastasis. Apocatastasis. (laughs) Apocatastasis. That's a mouthful. Yeah, it's it's a form of Christian universalism that was prevalent. And I underscore that word prevalent in the early centuries of the Christian faith. Apocatastasis means to restore something to its former state. So it might be used to restore someone to health, for instance, from sickness. That's the general idea. So the word shows up in Acts chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. This is Peter's second sermon or discourse in in the early chapters of Acts. And he's saying, repent so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is Jesus. And then he says, referring to Jesus, he says, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. Um, And so that universal restoration, the word apocatastasis is in there. Uh, That's that's really the one place that it shows up. But they use, um, those who held to apocatastasis used a number of passages particularly in the in the New Testament, to support this idea. So what is the idea? The general idea is that God will succeed in fulfilling the divine intention for the good of creation, for all of creation. Mm-hmm. So it's the universal restoration of all things, which will include humanity, but include, it includes all creation. Mm-hmm. And how is that done? God restores all things by eliminating all evil through Jesus Christ. And maybe a little more specifically, it is the restoration of the will and mind of intelligent creatures. Mm. Transformation of the will so that one freely and always chooses good over evil. And the other underlying principle is that evil cannot participate in the eternal life of God. Only good can. Mm -hmm. So I'll just give you a quick list of folks who adhered to apocatastasis. Um, And I get this from Alaria Ramelli's book, A Larger Hope. It's a question Mm -hmm. mark, the title of the book, A Larger Hope. She's the leading scholar right now in this area. So here's folks who adhere to it, according to her. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Anthony the Great, Eusebius of Caesarea, Didymus of Alexandria, Macrina the Younger, Gregory of Nyssa. She says Gregory of Nazianzus. Some say he was kind of on the fence. Evagrius, uh, Diodore of Tarsus, Melania. She was in Jerusalem, a very significant influence on Rufinus and uh, Maximus the Confessor, Melania, Rufinus, Cassian, she says, Isaac of Nineveh, and Maximus the Confessor, John Scotus Eregina. 
Um, Those are some big names. They are some big names. Particularly in early uh, Greek theology. That's right. They're not outliers of the Mm -hmm. Orthodox faith. No. (laughs) Um, And the other thing that maybe needs to said about most of these folks is they are, um, their understanding is related to the Alexandrian school. Mm. Uh, So. Okay. So it's widely predominant with major thinkers in the East, like all of the big names basically you've listed. Yeah. Uh, Tell us what it is. There's, Basically, two major premises for apocatastasis. One is ontological, and meaning it pertains to being and existence, and the other one is ethical, primarily their understanding of free will. So the first major premise is that evil is non-being. Mm-hmm. Evil is not a creature of God. Um, all that God creates is good. Evil is, it doesn't have um, entity. It's not a substance. Evil was um, rooted in, in, in the act of the will primarily. Mm. Um, so by their nature, evil acts are destructive and tend toward the negation of being. Okay. So just think about this. If evil were to succeed, everything would be destroyed. There would be nothing. Mm-hmm. Um. And one thing that Origen points out is that good and evil are not on par. They're not equal. One is uh, destructive in being, destructive of being, and therefore leads to spiritual death, as he puts it. The other leads to life. And when he's talking about this, and we'll have to come back to the word that is translated in the scriptures as eternal, but he, he says the contrary of life is death, specifically spiritual death. So it can't be eternal because eternal life and eternal death would not be contraries. If they're both eternal, they would be equal. Mm. Um, but of course, uh, death and non-being is not equal on par with goodness. Um, or to look at it a little, little different way. I mean, one issue with the idea that hell, for instance, is eternal conscious torment what that means is that evil lasts forever. It's a kind of pseudo manichaeanism where you have these two equal principles, good and evil, both of which somehow participate in the eternity of God. But of course, evil is not a principle. It's not a mm-hmm. thing or an entity. It's a matter of the will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for sin, uh, evil and rebellion to persist forever, God would have to ensure they persist forever, which is absurd right. since evil is contrary to the divine intention for good. Um, Gregory of Nyssa, I'll give you a quote from him. He says, evil must necessarily be eliminated absolutely in every respect, once and for all, from all that is. And since, in fact, evil does not exist, that is, it doesn't have existence, neither will it have to exist. For as evil does not exist in its nature outside the will, once each will has come to be in God, evil will be reduced to complete disappearance because no receptacle will be left for it. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, there, I mean, there's just a very basic conflict between saying 
Okay, evil doesn't have any existence on its own. It has no being on its own. It's the absence of good, right? right. Uh, so if that's true, you can't say, and then yet it exists eternally. It, has, <laughs> it doesn't have an existence. It's mm -hmm. meant to be filled by goodness, overcome by goodness, right? It's kind of a vacuum in that way. This just makes rational sense to me. Right. And again, it, and I, I, I kind of liken it to a, a pseudo man, the eternal conscious torment folks, the people who believe in eternal damnation. It's a pseudo manichaeanism because mm -hmm. evil and good exist for all eternity together. And that just cannot be the case, given so this understanding of the nature of evil, I should say. Sure. What do you think drives people to protect the ideas of hell or eternal conscious damnation? Because I know you and I have mentioned things, you know, even other ideas around universalism or salvation of all, restoration of all things in mm -hmm. different contexts, even quoting other pieces of scripture. Um, and there's always some pushback on that, where mm -hmm. I kind of want to be like, what do you care? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think some people assume it's an essential aspect of the gospel so mm -hmm. that if you get rid of it, you're somehow getting rid of the gospel. And I think that's part of what's helpful, at least about talking about apocatastasis, because um, at least in the first few centuries, it was an integral part of the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, and we can come back to this. I, I think part of it, Part of it is this assumption that if you don't threaten people with eternal torment, they're not going to act right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, and I think another part of it might be, you know, a, an orientation toward justice of thinking that it's not fair. It's not fair. All in right. some way that, you know, at, at the end of eternity. So that mm -hmm. sentence doesn't make any sense already. Uh, but that at the end of eternity, that my fate ends you know, and evil dictators mm -hmm. will be the same. But this this idea doesn't uh, negate aspects of a retribution, a punishment of some a punishment. Kind. Yeah, yeah. So can you say something about that? Well, yeah. The so they don't jettison the whole notion of hell. Um, it, well, hell, of course, isn't actually in the Bible. The notion of an age of, of punishment, the thing is, the punishment is cathartic mm -hmm. uh, versus purely retributive, because God is always trying to separate good from evil. And so what happens is if you enter the next age and you're still, as Gregory of Nyssa would put it, welded to evil, you're going to be separated from that partly because you will be drawn to the good, which you'll have a, a clearer apprehension of, but that will be painful because you've welded your nature to evil. Um, so yeah, it's, um, and we can come back to that, but it's a process of, of purification. So it's not like, I think the caricature of universalism is that I walk into heaven and there's my grandmother who was a saint and Hitler you know, playing checkers together. It's right. like everybody dies and goes to heaven. But that's if you're if you're again, as Nissa puts it, if you're welded 
to evil, you're going to be separated from that. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be painful. It's going to cause suffering. Yeah. So there's still real incentive for yes. me to be to do as much of that work as possible now. now in this life, as well as incentive for me to help others that's do right. as much of that work. So it's not an anti-nominalism. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of the first major premise, the ontological one. Evil is non-being. The second one is an ethical one. Um, well, let me just say one thing first. Two basic assumptions here regarding the conversions of the wills of intelligent beings from evil to good is, number one, that God is able to convert all intelligent wills to freely love the good. And two, that God wills that all come to love the good. I mean, we have passages where it says God wishes that none perish, that all come to repentance and salvation. So for God to not succeed in fulfilling the divine intention would mean evil wins, um, which is absurd. So evil's not going to win. That's kind of the first premise. The second one is uh, has to do with free will. And I'll just... But first, let me say how it's usually framed, uh, certainly these days, I think. Uh, this is how it's framed by those who support um, eternal damnation or eternal conscious torment, as I like to put it. That free will is our ability to choose good or evil. And this ability to choose good or evil in and of itself is a great good that God values. Right? So a free human is one who can choose either one. Those who support eternal damnation believe, like I said, that this is a great good that God values. But God values it more than the person who so chooses. And God is willing to subject humans to eternal torment if they so choose. Or... Um, they will say that because we are free, we can choose eternal separation from God. C.S. Lewis's notorious statement that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. All right. So this is one notion of free will, but it's not the notion of at least true freedom in, in these early centuries that we do have the ability to choose between good and evil, um, but that ability in and of itself is not the great good that God values. What God values is the ability of intelligent creatures to freely choose only the good. That's true freedom, mm -hmm. right? Um, the technical term here is ethical intellectualism, and it's this idea that the will and the mind are intimately connected, that we don't naturally desire evil. We naturally desire good, but we choose evil because it seems good to us. Mm. Um, so the choice of e evil is, is a result of a kind of a spiritual illness of the will connected with a, like a lack of spiritual insight into the good. Um, think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They choose because it seems good. They're deceived. Right. But once our will becomes entangled with evil, it further distorts our perception or apprehension of the good, and we become bound to it. So salvation is, number one, a healing of the will, 
think of Christ as the great physician, um, and a liberation of our intellect or our apprehension of the good, and think of Christ as logos. Um, and the idea is that the more we are transformed into the likeness of Christ, who is you know the union of humanity and divinity, kind of the goal there, that the more we will see what is truly good and the more we freely choose what is good, we become truly free, in other words. But it's a process. And of course, you know the process is theosis, right? That Christ became like us so that we might become like Christ. Theosis and apocatastasis are intimately related in this framework. But just think about what that means. The idea that anyone would freely, uh, the, uh, th what I'm saying is think about what the position of eternal damnation is, that the idea that anyone would freely, in full apprehension of the good, choose evil is nonsensical. Right. The very choice of evil is an act of spiritual ignorance and a defect of the will. It sounds like, you know, in the system that you're describing that everyone or most everyone, aside from the let's say maybe martyrs and saints, like real honest to goodness saints, is mm -hmm. gonna go through some refining period after this life, no? Yeah, and actually they, uh, I wish I knew the verse, but anyways, they often refer to a passage in Mark where it says we all will be salted with fire. Mm. The fire being, you know, the cathartic love of God perhaps, but so we all we will be. How do we pursue theosis in this life? What are the means of that? Because even that, the way that that's described in the West can be foreign as well, right? Particularly as Protestants who maybe lean into a kind of lower view of the sacraments, I think. Yeah. Yeah, participation in the sacraments is part of it. Also, it, um, resisting the passions, Passions mm -hmm. understood as bad desires. Mm -hmm. So spiritual practice has a looms large, I think, in the early centuries, precisely because we are preparing for the next life. Um, but yeah, the sacraments, um, it's, it's intentionally pursuing the good as revealed in Christ, because in doing that, you're becoming like Christ. Right. But Christ does a lot of the work himself in terms of incarnation. Mm. uniting uh, God and humanity um, and going through the whole human process and then taking humanity to the divine presence. Um, but yeah, if you look at folks like say Maximus confess the confessor, um, it's about detachment and resisting the passions he says detachment leads to love. And of course, love of God and love of neighbor is the goal. That almost that, sounds like a, like a conflict, right? We don't normally think of detachment being connected to love. Yeah. He says detachment leads to love because what keeps us from love is, um, is our attachments to self and selfishness and uh, inordinate attachment to the goods of the world and so on. Greed, right? Mm -hmm. um so yeah so maybe we can go back to punishment and hell and all that oh let's <laughs> that sounds exciting
So the ideas were being prepared in this life for a more intimate experience of the divine. Um, so in the scriptures, you'll see phrases, at least as they're translated in English, eternal life, mm -hmm. eternal punishment. And the word that's being used there is Ionios. Ionios is the adjective of the word ion, from which we get the word age. And so, and keep in mind, these are Greek-speaking Christians, and Origen talks about this, and Nyssa talks about this. But the word Ionios, one way to translate is not eternal, but age-long. Mm -hmm. Uh, Romelli interprets it simply otherworldly because it has to do with the next age, mm -hmm. but it's an indeterminate time. The only time the early church, these early church theologians understood Ionios to mean eternal was in relation to God. But any adjective that's related to God has that same feature of being eternal. Right. If we say God is a good God, it's eternally good. If we say God is a just God and so on. So technically, Ionios, Ionios means like age long or indeterminate time, whereas the word um, idios is the technical word for um, eternity in mm -hmm. Greek. And they didn't confuse those. But when it got translated into Latin, both of those were translated into the Latin word that means eternity. So that's part of the issue right there. Um, and the idea is that, you know, in the next stage, we either enter into um, age-long life in God because we're in Christ, or we enter into uh, age-long punishment, which, again, is cathartic. It's not purely retributive. Um, but, and then at the, at the consummation, God will be all in all. You know, First uh, Corinthians 15, where it says that, all the enemies of Christ will be subjected to him, uh, the last of which is death. And then Christ essentially hands the kingdom prepared and purified over to, and God is all in all, right? All things are. So there's these, this age or ages prior to the consummation where those who have not yet um, freely um, embraced the good go through catharsis, essentially. Gregory of Nyssa says, um, and I'm quoting, it, it is not the case that God's judgment has as its main purpose that of bringing about punishment to those who have sinned. On the contrary, the divinity on its part does exclusively what it is, what is good, that is separating good from evil and attracting the soul to itself with the view to its participation and beatitude. But the violent separation of what is united and attached to the soul, i.e. evil, is painful for the soul. Um, so, you know, as we were saying, they don't jettison the notion of an afterlife that is unhappy <laughs> or painful. Right. They, you know, it's not that caricature of universalism where everybody just goes straight to heaven. It's not that at all. So let me ask you this. So in the West, our concepts of hell or eternal damnation are probably colored more by people like Milton and Dante than scripture yeah. to begin yeah. with. But um, I mean, it's very clear in this scheme that 
whatever hell or refining activity is the realm of God, right? right. There's no absolutely dismissal of any kind of dualism there. Yes. Um, what about Satan or the devil? This is a good question. According to Romelli, origin kind of uh, wavers on it, although I was always under the impression he was all in for it, or at least he was accused of it. But uh, I was just reading her uh, the other day, but she she remarks that Nyssa, and I don't have a quote, Nyssa did believe um, even the devil will be restored. But you have to keep in mind that what's the end result? Let's just take Hitler as an example. At the consummation, after Hitler goes through this age of purgation, what's the end result of that is not going to be Hitler that we know now. It will be what the good that God had created minus the evil, the will that did all those evil things. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's one way why, you know, I'm not going to walk into heaven and see my grandmother and Hitler playing checkers because Hitler per se is not going to be there. Um, what God originally created is going to be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah would be unrecognizable unrecognizable hitler would be unrecognizable us, to, to himself hitler, but yeah okay i i love this i do too. i mean i liked it from the beginning but then you know you're pointing out all these details i mean for me honestly like you know the bigger problem would be if god created things that god didn't redeem exactly that's either god is not powerful enough or God doesn't care, which is it? Yeah, which both seem unworthy of worship mm -hmm. in my mind, but yeah. I'm simple. <laughs> and the idea is that the closer, the more intimate experience of the divine we have, the clearer apprehension of the good we will have. And mm -hmm. so we will freely choose it with the more with the clearer apprehension. The problem is if we enter into that more direct experience clinging to evil. We're going to want the good and, and we'll have to, in our in our going towards the good, i.e. God, we will be separated from what seems so intimately a part of us. That is our, our evil will, so to speak. And that'll be painful. But we'll, you know, my thought is the clearer the good is, the clearer our apprehension of God is going to be unresistible because that's what we're created for. That's what we want. So let's talk about what happened, or at least I'll give you my opinion of what oh, happened. Oh, please. So how did eternal conscious torment become predominant? Part of the blame, I think, lies with those who held to apocatastasis because they felt like it should be reserved for, and I'll use this phrase, the spiritually mature. And their thinking was, that if you tell this to the spiritually immature, instead of seeking the good, they're just going to do whatever they want and create for themselves a worse experience in the next age, even though it mm. won't be eternal or it'll be horrible. Right. And Gregory of Nyssa in one of his sermons even comes out and kind of lets the lets lets it out of the bag that you know there's this tendency to reserve this doctrine for the more experienced, the more those who are further along in the faith. So I think that's part of the problem. 
the second thing, and I think this simply has to do with, you know, once the church gained power, the temptation to convert through fear instead of love became the priority. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have this idea that there's no salvation outside the church. And then if you can convince people that they will be tormented eternally, if they're outside the church, then they'll line up for baptism. You know, that's my thought. I don't know. I wouldn't say it was a conspiracy so much as it was just a natural tendency to, to opt for power instead of love, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, there's definitely, I think, well, let me say this. So it kind of, you don't hear much about it after Erigina. He could read Greek, by the way. So that's part of why he, even though he's pretty late, he comes out with it. Um, but then there's, you don't hear much about it. And then in the 17th and 18th century, you see a resurgence of, I'll just say Christian universalism in general, because it, they don't all pull from the early church. Um, some of them have very different ideas. But if we come to today, I think more and more people are latching on to this early framework as a much better presentation of the gospel and understanding of God than eternal conscious torment. I think right now, and this is just my observation, there's basically three positions out there right now. And one is eternal conscious torment, right? The traditional eternal damnation. The other one is apocatastasis, universal restoration. And then the third one is conditional immortality. That basically eternal life is reserved for those who are in Christ and everybody else gets annihilated. Mm-hmm. And in my observation, this is especially popular in evangelical circles where they're wanting to get away from the notion of eternal torment. They seem to opt for conditional immortality, annihilationism. And maybe this should be said, regardless of who you speak to in those three different positions, they're all going to find scripture to support them. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the problem. The scriptures are somewhat ambiguous. But yeah, I'm with you. I love it. I uh, I don't know. When I was, you know, when we were in school and stuff, I was concerned about other things. I wasn't really thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but there came a point when the whole idea of God, how is God just in creating creatures that, number one, are enslaved to sin? Mm-hmm. And then God is going to turn around and ensure that they persist for eternity in the state of torment. How is it? I don't know. It's just untenable for me once I got to thinking about it. No, me too. And, and what I maybe even more than that appreciated this is, okay, so that's eternal conscious damnation, even annihilation really is untenable for me as far as maintaining the goodness and love of God. Mm -hmm. Um, This, I think, not only answers that, but I mean, it's inspiring gratitude and awe. I mean, I can't, you know, when you're 
talking about somebody like Hitler or the worst person, you know, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. or American slaveholders, you know, mm -hmm. this kind of thing that they're going to be redeemed in a way that will make them unrecognizable that God even can take something like that. And it's going to work good within them. I think that meshes so well with this idea of a beatific vision too, in which we can see God with one, one another, because I could, I will be able to see each one of us mm -hmm. and ourselves transformed through mm -hmm. that. That's amazing. Like that inspires, like I said, awe, thanksgiving, and mm -hmm. worship in a way that fear doesn't inspire awe mm -hmm. for me. No. <laughs> yeah. I think. Well, let me say this. Once once I came to embrace this, I began to see people through a different lens. Mm. You know, as if you assume that there's a certain number of humanity that cannot be reconciled with God, that somehow are destined for damnation, you, you can tell yourself, I love all people. And I want good for all people, but that assumption is going to work its way into how you see people, especially those you assume that are not right with God. <laughs> right, right. They're beyond God's reach. And so beyond I have no God's business reach. with them either. Right. right. <laughs> but once you begin to see that each and every single person is destined for the divine presence and to be healed, then you begin to look at people differently. There's, mm -hmm. And you begin to look at the faith differently. Um, I think. For a long time, I was what they refer to as a hopeful universalist, but I didn't want to take the leap. You know, it's kind of like God wills that none should perish. I will. I think that's right. And if God wills that, it must be possible. So I will hope that it's true. Mm -hmm. But the, these early church folks weren't hopeful universalists. They were convinced. And I think for good reason. Um but it definitely changes how you perceive other people. Uh, there, it's not us and them. Mm. It's just us. And Gregory of Nyssa is explicit that when God creates, God creates with all of humanity in mind, not just some of them. And when the incarnation occurs, it's not just that the word becomes a particular human. The word becomes humanity. Mm. Um, and so the end the end will be the realization of the union between humanity and God and humanity that God had envisioned from the very beginning. You know, it is the fulfillment of the divine intention. And man, to look at other people through that lens is, um, it's a much more helpful way of seeing people. They're loved by God and they will be reconciled. And, um, we will be united. So, you know, if you're in the, if you know that, um, you're going to treat them differently than you would if you assume, you know, there's some people that just ain't never going to get it and they deserve it. See, that's a thing that just drives me nuts of those mm -hmm. who they deserve eternal damnation. 
if that's your view, like we said many times, if that's how you understand God, you're going to act in, in an analogous way. You're going to treat people as if they don't deserve love. Mm -hmm.